Good morning. So, it is good to be back together with you all after uh, our time apart for Thanksgiving and enjoying the fellowship with uh, family and friends and and others, but to uh, come together and to sing praises as we enter this Advent season, as we look forward to and celebrate uh, really the reason that we can even give thanks, which is the coming and the the birth of Jesus Christ in preparation for his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so we look forward to celebrating this time of year. This is always one of my, my favorite times of year, as I know it is for many of you, as we consider the, uh, uh, consider the Christmas season. There's so much that makes it enjoyable and festive and celebratory, and so I'm looking forward to, to doing that with each of you throughout this season. Well, we will continue our study this morning in the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew 18, but before you turn there, take a left with me to Psalm 103. This text we've been looking at the past couple of weeks in Matthew 18, verses 12 through 20, as we've noted, as you've probably heard before, it's a, it's a text that is referred to as a text on church discipline. Uh, and that is not uncommon. We've, we've already talked about how it's a little bit unfortunate that that uh, moniker, that name, that designation is what so, uh, so quickly comes to mind in this text when it is much more about a rescue mission, about seeking and rescuing those who are most needy in the kingdom of God and therefore greatest in the kingdom of God. But in helping to frame our perspective and our thinking on sin and how we deal with sin, whether it's sin against us, whether it's sin that we observed, it's helpful to remind ourselves of the perspective God has towards sin, specifically how he has dealt with us. So before we return to our text this morning, I thought it'd be helpful to just read a few verses from Psalm 103 to set in mind really what is the heart of God What is the heart of Christ in this whole process? In verse 8, we read, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heaven are, heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. It's with that in mind and that understanding that the Lord has of us, of what we can bear and what we cannot bear, that we return this morning to our study in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 18. As we observe what we have called this spiritual or this divine search and rescue mission, to go after the one who is lost, one of the children of God, one of the sheep of his pasture who has become lost, begins with the individual as we looked at last week. It may involve a couple of others at some point. And as we'll look at this week, it eventually may at times require 
the entire body to become involved, the entire assembly to become involved in this rescue mission, to go and rescue the one who has become lost, who has become entrapped in their sin. But in all of this, it is to demonstrate the gentleness, the compassion, the shepherding of God the Father, to imitate that in how we go about this entire process. I'm going to read Matthew 18, 12 through 20 as we again set the context in mind. <coughs> and Jesus asked the disciples, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So it's with that in mind, not desiring that any should perish, that he then says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven." For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Let's pray as we enter into our study this morning. Father, we thank you that you have not dealt with us according to our iniquity. You have been far more gracious and patient and long-suffering than we will ever be. Thank you for your mercy which has been shown to us. We thank you for the, for the forgiveness that is offered. Father, as we study this passage, we pray that this would help just ingrain within us a heart and a desire to seek after those who are in spiritual danger with a heart of love, a heart of compassion, a heart of concern, a heart of a shepherd. Father, you've called all of us to this mission, all of those who assemble, who call themselves your children, who claim to be your disciples. Help it to be a mark of us that we love one another so much that we, we pursue one another. And we pursue in love and in gentleness with the same forbearance that you have shown us. In your name, amen. Well, last week we hit the brakes a bit hard and ended abruptly in verse 16, looking at really the personal nature of this divine search and rescue plan of the individual going after the one who is sin, presumably the one who has actually sinned against them. We did look at the second hypothetical that Jesus offered after that is, well, what, what do you do if they won't respond? If one is not enough, if one is not enough to lift the car over the crush, off of the crushed victim, then what? Well, then you go for help. You bring a couple of others with you. Again, not for the purpose of condemning, but for the purpose of rescuing. 
of pursuing, of restoring the one who is in spiritual danger, of helping them recognize their plight. And again, it's important to remember that we are focused here on those who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That was the question that really led into this whole discourse and this whole discussion back at the beginning of Matthew 18 or the disciples wanting to know which of them is great, going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Christ completely upends their thinking, reorients it so that we understand that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one in greatest need. And so that's what this is about. It's about pursuing those who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven, those who require the utmost urgent care. And so now as we look at these final four verses, we turn our attention to two final hypotheticals that Jesus, is intro- Jesus introduces and then two concluding comments Jesus has on this spiritual search and rescue mission. Verse 17 opens with a, that third hypothetical where he says, if he is in fact sinning, if he does not repent when the others come, if he is still not repenting, when they come out of care and concern, then what? What do we do? Do we abandon him? We let him die of natural causes? No, then they must tell it to the church. Now, it says it must tell it to the church. So here's my question for you. What is the it? Is it that we must publicly get up and declare his sin? Well, there may be a need to tell the sin, but I think it's much broader than that. It's much less punitive than that. The it is the spiritual condition of the person. The it is the situation that he has found himself in, that he is in spiritual danger, that we must pursue. The it there is all that has been going on to rescue this person. And yes, that may include revealing what the sin was and the testimony of the two or three to say, yes, this is in fact taking place. But all of it, all of this it is to call everyone to rescue. Call everyone, grab your flashlights, grab your canteens, gather together, we're going together on this search and rescue mission. There's nothing here of shaming. There's nothing here of shunning, but of calling together the community for spiritual search and rescue. Just like the modern day examples I mentioned last week, when a child or a hiker goes missing in the woods, the community comes together to begin searching for this lost person. And that's what's going on here. It's a call for the church to set out together to find and restore the one caught in sin. And once again, we find no specific timeline. I think this stresses the long-suffering nature of this process, specifically in the context of personal sin. It's important to to keep in mind that this situation is different than that addressed in, for example, 1 Corinthians 5, where public sin was engaged in, boasted about, and tolerated. It's different than a false teacher entering into the assembly and trying to turn persons away from the truth of Scripture to deny Jesus as the Son of God. No, our context is when a brother or sister sins against another individual in the believing community, and possibly sin observed by one in the believing community. Though I think, and I made this argument last week, I think the context leans much more heavily toward someone sinning against another believer. What do I do when 
someone sins against me. Especially in light of Peter's question in verse 21. 21. This is a reminder that this spiritual search and rescue plan is specifically designed for this context. It does not mean that there is no value or merit in applying it elsewhere, but we need to be careful of establishing a strict process from this passage that can automatically be layered onto every possible situation. In fact, the very, fa- the, uh, the very fact that Jesus says, you know, two or three or bring one or two others with regard to the witnesses demonstrates, I believe, that there is at least some latitude and some discernment in how the process is applied. It doesn't mean it's unlimited, but there is some latitude in how the process is applied, how long it takes before you go and seek out another person to come alongside. And so we need to keep that context in mind as we look at this. Jesus moves very quickly into the next hypothetical. And this final hypothetical is offered by Jesus in the second half of verse 17. What if they will still not repent? What then? What do we do? When the assembly has come together, when they've sought him, when they've gone after him, and they still will not repent, what now? What do we do? This really provides the sad and pitiable condition where the sinner will not listen even to the church to those who love them, who have ministered along with them. Despite the calls, the visits, the love shown by others, they refuse to repent of their sin. In that case, Jesus says, they are to be as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, we don't refer to too many people today as Gentiles. And we don't think or we don't personalize the tax collector quite as much as they would have in Jesus's day. So what does this mean? What does it mean that they are to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector? Well, for one, these persons were considered outside the Jewish community. They couldn't participate in the normal family religious functions of the community. And so we might infer that when discipline finally comes into play, It is the church, having collectively made every effort to restore, who must then say to that sinning brother or sister, we can no longer treat you as a believer. You can no longer enjoy the benefits and the intimacy and the close fellowship of the body of Christ. And it's important to know that it's here for the first time that we find the only instance in which discipline does come into play. And it's done by the assembly on the basis of faithful and true testimony of two to three witnesses after having patiently sought this person, that they must now enact a change in the relationship. And really all they are doing is recognizing that this relationship never existed to begin with. But what what are we to make of this change of relationship? Well, the answer to Jesus is that Jesus provides to his final hypothetical has been subject to really two extremes with regard to misunderstanding it. On the one hand are those who view this as instruction on shunning and eliminating all contact whatsoever with a person from the community. That's one side. On the other side, you have those who say, well, that Jesus' ministry, you know, emphasized sinners, Gentiles, tax collectors. 
He was called, in fact, a friend of sinners. So this is actually a renewed call for welcoming them into your homes in a new and aggressive way, of engaging with them even more personally, displaying a lavish hospitality to them. I think both of those are two extremes with regard to interpreting this text. So what does it say? Well, certainly there is a change in the nature of the relationship. I think the simpler and clearer reading is that it goes from one of kinship to one of stranger. It's that simple. That's what it says. It goes from one of kinship to one of stranger. However, that doesn't imply cutting off all contact. We interact with strangers each and every day. So it's not the extreme of shunning and cutting them off completely, but it does suggest that the purpose of future contact is with the goal of bringing about repentance to see a relationship changed back to one of kinship and closeness. Now, I do believe it's important to note that Jesus, how Jesus related to tax collectors and Gentiles. So there is a subtle reminder here that this is not a call for that shunning, though a change of relationship has taken place, but to avoid the extreme of now this aggressive hospitality where we welcome them into our homes and they should make up a majority of our fellowship and association. I think it's important to think about the nature of the persons and the Gentiles and the sinners with whom Jesus ate dinner, that he had relationships with. It was those who were seeking to learn. It's not those who had become hard-hearted, but it was those who wanted to know more. It was those who, in many cases, we ultimately see weeping over their sin. So it wasn't just a wholesale acceptance and closeness of relationship with every sinner, though Jesus cared for them all. Where you see those, that unique, we might say, hospitality with Jesus, it was almost always In fact, I can't think of a single example where it's not in the context of those who were seeking to learn more, where a softness of heart was present. So how might we summarize this and what the church is to do? Well, you're no longer to enjoy, no longer able to enjoy the intimacy of fellowship you once had, but you're still to pray for them just as you do strangers and unbelievers. You're still to speak to them You're still to reach out to them. You're still to preach the gospel to them. And if they respond favorably and you see that softening of heart, then certainly invite them to your home. Engage with them in a deeper and a stronger way, praying that all the while it would lead to repentance. Because what they have done by this stage is to put on display that they never really believed to begin with. Notice, too, that this urgent caring There is no cessation to it. Even though there are no further steps, there's also not a termination. It's left completely open-ended. The job of the church is never done. They're to continue pursuing this one. In fact, they're to continue pursuing all unbelievers in their state of unbelief. But what has changed is the nature of the pursuing, where before, in the first three hypotheticals, It was as if they were a fellow disciple, a fellow follower of Jesus Christ. But it's now to be done as if that one were never a true follower of Jesus Christ to begin with. 
So the most necessary thing to do with that person is to share the good news of forgiveness from sins that is found in Jesus Christ. To preach of the rest that will come with repentance. This is a hard text. It's not a fun thing to think about, to contemplate, to do. And yet it's the most loving thing we can do when it's reached this stage. To let them see that there is a difference in their relationship, to not make them feel comfortable in their sin, to not help them feel or to not help them forget that they are not at peace with God. You see, if we are to encourage and allow the sin to continue, and I'll use the example of 1 Corinthians 5, even though the context is a bit different, where the church almost celebrated the sin of this individual. There was no admonition. There was apparently no rebuke of the immorality. And so what were they doing? They were helping that person to forget that they were not at peace with God. They were paving the way for their punishment, for their destruction. There's good reason to think that person was never a believer to begin with. And so you confuse them. You see, it is absolutely necessary that the one that has become hardened in their heart understand the difference in their relationship with God. That they understand they are not at peace with God. And for us to pretend otherwise is to do them great harm. And so we must demonstrate that change of relationship to demonstrate that they do not have a relationship with God. At least they're certainly not acting like it. And as we read this morning from Psalm 32, when they cling to their sin, they will feel the weight of it. But again, this is not a passage about removing the dead wood or purifying the church. Does Christ care about the purity of his church? Absolutely. But apart from clear false teaching, such as Titus 3 or Romans 16, or public displays of unrighteousness that will not be repented of, like those of the individual in 1 Corinthians 5 or 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 through 15, individuals, as well as the body, must exhibit patience as they seek to restore the one in great need. See, this, this whole text is about enlarging the body, protecting the body, not slimming it down. Does that happen? Yes, at times. But that's not the purpose. That's not the goal. Now, Jesus could have concluded at this point. I mean, there's really no other hypotheticals to draw. We already understand the unspoken. If they repent at any stage of this process, wonderful. We welcome. We've won our brother, as we see at the beginning in verse 15. So he could have concluded at this point, but he has two final comments to make about this spiritual search and rescue mission and this process. In verse 18, Jesus repeats a promise that was given to Peter, to Peter exclusively, at least specifically, might be a better way to say it, in chapter 16, verse 19, about this binding and loosing. This verse, though, is one of those which help to explain that that instruction, that command, that promise given to Peter in chapter 16, verse 19, was intended for the church at large through the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But now, in addition to seeing the 
the fact that it is now applied more broadly to the whole assembly of the church, Jesus is going to give us a very specific, a very contextual application of this binding and loosing. Jesus uses the plural verb form, so we know he's talking to everybody here, and he tells the believing community, the assembly, the church, that they have a responsibility. Now, I'll acknowledge this is not an easy passage to interpret, especially today. I mean, when's the last time you walked around talking about binding and loosing? So let's start by asking a few questions and really identifying those elements of this text that are relatively clear that we can clearly understand. First, this is a, again, a specific application in a specific context of the promise or statement given to Peter in chapter 16, verse 19. Secondly, binding and loosing are a declaration on earth of what is already true in heaven. We see that through the language, shall have been. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So we are not acting on our own authority in this. This is an affirming of what has already been declared to be true in heaven. Thirdly, the language of binding and loosing and this is where the context and the historical context is helpful. They were often used by rabbis and religious leaders to refer to the binding of one's sin to a person or the loosing, the freeing of one's sin from a person. That is, a forgiving them so that their, their sin is no longer tied to them. They've been freed from it. John records a similar saying of Jesus after his resurrection where Jesus says in John 20, verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Fourthly, we noted briefly when studying chapter 16, verse 19, that the binding and loosing also refer to teaching, that is, to the keys of the kingdom. There's a tight connection between the keys of the kingdom which is the teaching that would leave, open up entrance into the kingdom, and this binding and loosing. And that binding and loosing being specific teaching with regard to the kingdom. So, if that is the case, and if that's true from chapter 16, we would expect that this binding and loosing in chapter 18 has something to do with teaching or declaring the truth of the kingdom. And in this case, if one confesses their sin so that either the individual who is sinned against or the church as a whole can express forgiveness, the church is expressing or teaching a heavenly reality that God forgives sin. In fact, he's already forgiven it. And just as the individual or assembly forgives, so God is forgiven, whereas if there is no repentance of sin, then the declaration of the church that this unrepentant sinner is not forgiven or their sins are still bound to them, is to declare a heavenly reality. It's to recognize what is already true in heaven. God has not forgiven them. Their sins are still tied to them. Again, just like we read in Psalm 32, where David, when he would not repent, his body wasted away. His bones melted like wax. And so this binding and loosely, loosing is closely associated with proclaiming and declaring 
truth about how God forgives graciously sin of the repentant sinner and conversely binds to the sinner their unconfessed sin. It really heightens the significance and the importance of repenting over sin. Well, Jesus' final comment on this spiritual search and rescue also has to do with that agreement between what has already happened in heaven and what is happening on earth. However, it takes us back to where the whole process began, a matter between two individuals. Now, before I lay out the case for what I believe is the appropriate and correct interpretation of these verses, I think it's important to comment on, on how they've been interpreted by others. This text has been referred to as the law or the practice of agreement in prayer. You may have heard that term. Some have said that there is miracle power whenever two or more come together in prayer so that really anything becomes possible when two or more gather in unity and prayer. Is that what this passage is teaching? I don't think it is, and I'll show you why. It has likewise been used to emphasize the presence of Christ that is with believers that come together in agreement. Now, is that a true statement? Is Jesus with believers when they are together? Yes, absolutely. Now, if you go off by yourself, is Jesus also with you? Yes. So it's not like Jesus has ever stopped being with, it, with us. So it must be teaching something else about the presence of Christ. Sam Storms notes that the simple fact remains that Jesus was not talking about any so-called law of agreement or in any way suggesting that if we can put aside our differences and come to unity and that for which we pray, we will see miracle power released where anything becomes possible. Now, there are plenty of passages in Scripture that emphasize the importance of prayer. In fact, of praying together as believers and as the body. There are likewise important passages about unity and agreement in the body. There are important passages about Christ with us. That is Emmanuel. We're about to celebrate that this season. And so nothing I'm going to say regarding these two verses should undermine those very important truths. But that doesn't change the reality that Matthew 18, 19 through 20 is not the place to go to for those promises. And let me show you why. What is Jesus saying in these verses? Well, verse 19 again reintroduces us or introduces us to two persons. We see that, right? Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> so we need to ask who are these two persons? Well, we were introduced to two persons who were in need of unity and reconciliation back in verse 15. These two were the sinner and the one sinned against, or possibly the one observing the sin. I believe that Jesus is here providing more detail around the reconciliation that should take place in this spiritual search and rescue. In other words, it should be an extreme rarity that we ever see a person treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. Rather, what we should expect to see is exactly what we see in verse 19. 
We should observe repentance and agreement and reconciliation between these initial two at some step in the process as they come together in unity. And when they come together in agreement, the forgiveness and reconciliation will be given by our Father who is in heaven. There's other language here that I think helps to tie these texts, tie the beginning to the end. For example, it says, if the two of you agree on earth about anything. Now that sounds really open-ended, doesn't it? But in this context, we've already seen a any matter or anything. If you look up to verse 16, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact, any matter may be confirmed. Any matter of what? Well, again, context dictates it. Any matter pertaining to this sin, this breach in the relationship, this need for reconciliation. And so what Jesus is saying in verse 19 is that when two of you come together where sin had divided, when you come together in agreement, it will be done by my Father who is in heaven. This is very similar to what James both instructs and teaches in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Verse 20 is closely tied to verse 19. And what is Jesus promising here? He's promising that when this coming together, the seeking of forgiveness and reconciliation takes place, when they gather together in unity, he is there in the midst of them, guiding and strengthening. He is, in fact, the source of the unity and the forgiveness that has been realized. Forgiveness of sin... This spiritual rescue and restoration is only possible because of Jesus Christ. It's possible on both this earth and in heaven because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why forgiveness is possible. Verses 19 through 20 affirm that forgiveness, true forgiveness is possible because, through, with, and by Jesus Christ. So yes, this is a passage on unity, but it's unity found in reconciliation. Yes, it's a passage about Christ being there, but it's him being there in the power of forgiveness, being the means of forgiveness. I mean, why are we to forgive others? Well, John tells us that in 1 John, doesn't he? Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. It's because of Christ that we can forgive. These past three weeks, we've looked at this paradigm for spiritual search and rescue and this earnest effort to seek out the neediest in our midst. And I want to close by providing some additional practical application from these passages. Now, we're far from finished with our discussion of forgiveness as we start to look at Peter's question next week. But I want to focus on what we have observed in verses 12 through 20 about this emphasis on seeking and rescuing those who are in spiritual danger. 
believers in the local church and the assembly, they look out for one another because they love one another. It's a sad place where you feel like you're always under a guise of suspicion, where persons are looking to find and nitpick one another's sins. Instead, we should be emphasizing our love, our care, our forbearance with one another. In fact, if you are motivated by any other emotion, any other concept, any other idea in pursuing this process and pursuing a brother or sister, stop and pray and wait until you are motivated by love before pursuing them. One of the benefits of a smaller congregation is that it's harder for persons to become lost. But it still requires effort. And don't think that this is just going to come naturally. It's going to take being disciplined. It's going to take paying attention to who's missing, who isn't around, who is dropped off the radar. And coming alongside them, and spending time with one another, and loving on them. And I'll add this, if our local assembly were to ever grow, it would be, I say it would be, it is absolutely necessary that we lay a foundation now for seeking those who are most needy. And not allowing persons to disappear physically or become lost spiritually without seeking them out. We need to establish that pattern now. Make it a habit now. This is one of the important benefits of church membership. In a more transient culture, it's important for church members and leaders to know those who are part of the church. That doesn't mean we don't pursue those who have not become members or we don't care about them, but special attention, special diligence will be given to those who have expressed their commitment toward one another publicly. It's important. We should also make it our desire to never have to bring others into a situation. Our desire, our goal from the outset should be to resolve this one-on-one before it ever becomes a bigger issue. We don't go for help until it becomes certain that we cannot rescue them ourselves. If someone falls and scratches their knee, I don't immediately call 911 and bring in the ambulance, the fire department, and everybody else. Now, as I tend to them, if I find out there was more involved, they were hurt worse than they were, the bleeding won't stop, I can't do it myself, well, now's the time to go and get help. But I resort to that help when I discover the injury is too severe and I'm unable to solve it, to rescue, to restore on my own. But my motivation, my reason for going has never changed. We talked about this a little bit last week, but do not be in a hurry to pursue or rebuke every sin you see. This is important. That's why I felt it needed to be repeated. We read Psalm 103 this morning as we started. Look, if you spend enough time with me, you're going to see a lot that you could rebuke me about. My guess is it's the same if I spend a lot of time with you. We need to develop patience and forbearance with one another. We need to spend more time praying than confronting. We need to spend more time exhorting and encouraging 
and strengthening one another, strengthening the hands that are weak than we are just confronting sin. Learn to assume the best and practice praying for one another, for spiritual maturity of others, more than practice rebuking or confronting. And remember the context of Matthew 18. It is specifically focused upon personal and private sin that creates grave spiritual danger. It is not intended to prevent us from addressing public immorality or gross theological error until we have first gone privately and patiently waited with a person. Now, love and gentleness should still govern each of these interactions. You don't get to lay aside the fruit of the Spirit just because you've got to go deal with something quickly. But verses 12 through 20 of Matthew 18 is not an absolute procedure for every single possible scenario of sin or false teaching. There is certainly proverbial wisdom in it that may apply to every situation, but it is not a universal procedure. And we see this because other procedures, other examples, variations of the process are found throughout Scripture, both in practice and acts as well as instruction in the epistles. Along that line of that procedure, I want to give you something to pay attention to when you do find yourself in these situations. Because again, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you need to be involved in spiritual search and rescue. But if you are pursuing a person and they become more concerned about whether you are correctly following procedure than they are over their sin, understand that it's an indication of their hardness of heart. Now, don't let that deter you. Don't let it stop you. Don't allow their preoccupation with procedure to distract you from trying to rescue them and calling them to repentance in a loving and caring way. But don't get drawn into an argument over procedure. It's a no-win situation. Instead, pursue them, love them, seek after them, pray for them. It may mean that you've got to bring others in a little bit sooner than you would in other situations. Finally, remember that this is not a passage about purifying the church. God will take care of that. How do I know? Well, we saw it in the parable of Matthew 13, verses 28 through 29. We talked about the landowner who sowed his wheat. And you remember at night, what happened? The enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Now the servants, the angels, were very zealous for the landowner and they as soon as it began to sprout, they said, an enemy has come, they've sown tares with the wheat, let's go rip them out for you. And what did the landowner say? He said, go do it? He said, no, allow them to grow together and separate them at the harvest. Does it mean we ignore sin? No, absolutely not. But we do not need to become sin hunters. The Lord will deal with this at the final day. He will sort out the tares and the wheat. Certainly, let's pursue righteousness. Let's encourage one another. Let's exhort one another. Let's call one another to holy living, both through how we live and through our words. But let's not become preoccupied with trying to sort out the sin in others' lives. Our individual efforts should be aimed at inclusion, not exclusion. At drawing people into the body. Remember Paul's words to the Galatians in Galatians 6.1. And I'll close with this. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, 
each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the instruction and the teaching given to us in Matthew 18. Father, it's a hard text and it's hard because we're a hard people. We become hard-hearted in our sin, needing rescuing. We become calloused in our approach to rescuing others. As the Lord, the difficulty lies much more in how we apply this text and how we think about this text and our sinful propensities than it is in what you are saying. Help us to clothe ourselves with humility and gentleness. Help us to be eager to search out, to rescue, to care for, to love on one another. Father, so much can be prevented, so much heartache can be avoided if we would spend more time loving one another, coming alongside one another, exhorting one another to love and good deeds. Help us to be faithful in these things. Pray this in your name. Amen.